Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Today's guest is John Mark Ballou. If you've been paying attention to the local news over the past couple of decades, that name should already be pretty familiar to you. John Mark retired last month from the Amarillo Globe News, where he literally spent decades as a sports reporter and editor and then as a regular local columnist. I've always appreciated John Mark's willingness to tell the unique stories of the people who live here. His career as a journalist has had a huge local impact, more so than pretty much any other journalist I can think of uh, over the past generation. So it's a real honor to have him as my guest this week. Now, before we start talking, a disclosure, I've known John Mark for years. Um, He's interviewed me before, and as a fellow journalist, I've pitched him stories before. So there definitely is a professional and personal connection. Anyway, here's John Mark Ballou. John Mark Ballou, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. I appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you, uh, Jason. Good to be here. Appreciate you asking. Yeah, so it, it occurs to me that there might be a lot of people in town who feel they know you pretty well, but have never actually heard your voice or heard you speak. I, I don't know if that's the way you like it or not. <laughs> Depends on what I've written. <laughs> yeah, so this will be a new opportunity. Um, but before we talk about you know the, the whole breadth of your career and retirement and all that stuff, I, I want to get a little bit of background information. Mm-hmm. So tell me how you ended up here in Amarillo in the first place. Well, I, um, I grew up not far from here. I grew up in the big town of Groon, which is east of here. My dad, stepdad was a, a farmer, and my mom was English teacher. And, um, uh, you know, so I grew up sort of an idyllic life, if you will, in the 60s and 70s. I tell the story, and it's not too much of an exaggeration, that I worked worked for my dad a lot, you know, uh, especially in the summers, driving a hot tractor or combine or moving pipe and stuff. And, you know, it was always so hot. And, and I, I didn't want to know what I wanted to do with my life. I just wanted it to involve air conditioning. Yeah. And uh, so... But this you know, is before the nice air conditioned exactly, yeah, more or less. I had a little swamp cooler that blow my elbow or something like that. But I also began to write uh, high school paper and stuff like that, and and it sort of kind of evolved from that. And so from there, I went to tech, uh, got my uh, degree in journalism, wrote for the school paper, which is University Daily mm-hmm. at the time, and learned an awful lot. Uh, there and decided, you know, that's what I wanted to do, pursue a career. And at that time, it had been exclusively in, in sports. I was sports editor of the UD, and and uh, I got an opportunity, a man named, uh, who later became publisher, Garrett Von Netzer at the time, a sports editor, and he uh, sent me a, just a, a letter toward the end of my graduation that looked like we'd have an, a job opening. Uh, I'd be interested in talking with you, and I knew Garrett a little bit. I'd kind of, you know, I'd obviously grown up reading the uh, Emerald paper. And so uh, I interviewed there and in another place. And uh, I think Emerald offered me like five or $10 a week more. Uh, and this was in 1981. This is the big money. Yeah, big money. Yes. And so, you know, that was the, the area I was comfortable with. And so, and I knew a lot of those guys previously. We had a staff at that time, I believe it or not, of about 12 in yeah. sports. And so I accepted the job and, uh, in June of 81, and uh, as a sports writer, one of about 10 on staff uh, plus some desk men, so it's 12, 13, 14 people. Told the story, you know, I thought I'd be there, you know, six months, and a friend of mine said, oh, you know, you got to give it a year at least. And 
life life's kind of funny. <laughs> I, I was going to say, did, did you have an idea, you know, as, as you graduated from tech, I mean, did you, did you like have a plan for your life as a journalist? Did you anticipate uh, at some point I'm going to end up here and right, I'm try to do right. this? Well, you know, at that time I thought, you know, I, I, like a lot of people, I thought I want to be in a major market within a few years covering something major. I'll maybe want to be a syndicated columnist, you know, for some of these, uh, sports-related periodicals, magazines, whatever. And that's kind of how, I f- you know, you would just step up bigger career like like TV, radio, want to eventually work in bigger markets, so the newspapers. I just thought it would be a progression to bigger markets, and uh, that was sort of the plan. And to some degree, within a few years, I had had an offer to work, go to uh, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Austin American Statesman, Oklahoma City, Daily Oklahoman, and even the in Los Angeles, uh, not the Times, but the Los Angeles Daily News, mm-hmm. and and I agonized over those, and I, uh, you know, I, I probably some insecurities probably rose up at the time, thinking I just, you know, I don't know if I can do this, you know, probably a little bit lack of self confidence, a lack of uh, risk involvement on my time in part, and. I was giving up a sure thing for some unsure things. And so that kind of, uh, to be honest, is real self-reflection. That kind of threw me for a loop there that these these uh, these plans that I had were sort of like going away because of my own, what I thought was my own, you know, insecurities, I yeah. guess. And later, through the uh, reflection, through uh, looking back, I could see that, you know, maybe this was God's hand and just in a way of kind of saying, you know, maybe you just ought to stay here, stay here. And I'm going to, I've got some grass for you to water rather than, than somewhere else. I want to ask you the question, um, going back to your childhood. Um, I'm always interested in the perspective of people who grow up in some of these smaller panhandle towns like Mm -hmm. Groom Mm -hmm. or Vega, you know, Mm -hmm. whichever direction, what your perspective was of Amarillo back then i mean did did you view it as well that's that's the big city and it's a it's a treat we'll go to the big city on the weekends even you know back in the 60s or 70s whenever ginger nelson's from spearman and uh she she's called one time called amarillo i think she's called it the 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 shining city on a hill or something like that i wasn't that uh clever back in the day but yeah that was you know that was where you went to go shopping um yeah, that was where you went to go to the movies and stuff. And for us, it was a 45-minute drive. And I can remember as a kid, I'm dating myself, 10, 11 years old, you know, me and my younger sister, my mother would drag us to Amarillo, to the hub and places like that yeah. to go shopping. And she would pr- kind of bribe us and say, and we'll stop at McDonald's to have lunch, you know. And Oh, okay, you know. And Hey, you know, McDonald's is 50 million hamburgers sold now. And, I'm really dating yeah, myself yeah, now. Yeah, that was a long, long time ago. <laughs> but, you know, that was the place you went. And uh, growing up, um, it's no longer here, uh, Esquire Theater. Yeah. You know, that was where you went and saw, that's where we could see our uh, Walt Disney movies. And, uh, you know, when you went to Western Plaza and you had an Orange Julius at Western Plaza. So it was kind of the, or later on you went to Hastings, which was at Western Plaza. And so that was kind of the was kind of the place you went to and then as you got into high school you know if you had a big date that's where you went you didn't you know you you know that's something to do and so Amarillo was a little bit of an extension of where you grew up you know and uh, it was that city that that's where you went to to spread out a little bit you know you got involved in 
the the sports department at the newspaper. Was was that a natural fit for you? I mean, you said you did that at Tech. Did you mm-hmm. grow up playing sports? Yeah, I, mean, I did. You know, in a small town in, in the '60s and '70s, it, it, everything kind of revolves around the high school. And in the high school, so many of it, especially where I grew up, was was athletically. So I played played everything, and you do at a small school. And you know, sports too lends itself to some good stories. Uh, and so I kind of thought that's what I would want to do. And uh, I remember in uh, in college at Tech, I got onto the uh, paid staff, and and the first one of the first assignments I had covering something was a was a Tech football game, and it was a night game, and I was running late doing some stuff, and I thought. I hadn't had time to eat yet, but I had to go to the game and I get up to the press box and there's a catered meal in the press box. And it was a big time. And it was like, and I get to eat for free. And it was like the heavens had parted and, you know, here come the hosannas down saying you shall do this for your living, you know? So it was sort of like that. The and yellow so, brick road. Yeah. Yeah. Right it was, uh, and so, uh, you know, and I thought that's what I would be doing for a good while because, you know, understood it. I could write it. Sports is, you know, you got weird hours. We're very weird hours. You got, you're constantly on deadline, but I learned to accept all that stuff. And, and, uh, I thought that's what I'd be doing. And, and I ended up doing that for, you know, 25 years. Yeah. For 25 years. And then, then you made a transition from doing that to writing a weekly call or more than weekly, mm-hmm. two or three times a week, three times a week, three times mm-hmm. a week for the globe news. It was more human interest right. kinds of stuff, right. um, which is a, you know, people might look at that and say, well, he was writing in one spot, now he's writing in another part of the paper. But that's a pretty big shift in terms of your focus. So it, tell me about, you know, midway through your career, kind of switching gears in that way. Well, like. uh, it kind of came about unexpectedly. Uh, and to be honest, there was some uh, tension between a former editor and a lot of editors below her. And um, this was offered to me. Uh, and I thought, well, I'd always had an interest beyond sports. Uh, I'd always had an interest pretty varied. Always liked to write. This would be a chance, you know, as a sports editor, you're involved in so much management stuff and putting out fires. And the longer you're in it, the less you got you do what you got in it for. And so I thought, well, I can only worry about myself and uh, I can just kind of write. And so I said, let me sleep on it at night. And then I said, you know, I'll take it, even though, I would get out of my comfort zone somewhat. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm in a position where every week I'm finding a new person to interview. You're trying to find a story to tell three times a week, you know, and then you've done that for what ten years at least. It was, it was nearly twelve. Twelve years. So tell me about for people that don't know the business, how you find those stories. How do you figure out? Okay, this is this is a column. You know, mm-hmm. this is a story that I can tell mm-hmm. this week. How does that happen? Well, Jason, it's funny you mentioned that because. You're pretty perceptive because that is the number one, for any colonist, that's the number one stress-inducing part of your job is you've got a blank canvas and you've got to fill that three times a week. And you've got to fill it. And, and it's know, not just an opinion column. No, it's, it's not. It's, it's it can be any, yeah, stuff, it's, it's about know? stuff, yeah. And so while you can write about anything, there's not one necessary beat that's feeding you all this stuff. So it's up to you to find this. You know, I'd write something for Wednesday and I'm always saying, oh gosh, what am I going to do for Friday and Sunday? That's the days I wrote. And then I get through Friday for Sunday and go, oh, what's going to up next week? And so particularly early on, it was a real anxiety inducing struggle. And I, I tell this story and it's true. 
uh, I was at uh, the Family Life Center of our church at First Baptist, and uh, kind of going through that, I was working out, and I saw our pastor, Howie Batson, and he's excellent in the, in the pulpit and everything. And I thought, you know, a sermon is like a column. you got to fill it. you gotta, you know, you got to do it every week, sometimes twice a week. It's up to you to do it. I wonder how he handles it. And so I said, Howie, how many sermon topics are you ahead Hoping he would say, oh, man, there's some Mondays I come in and I don't know what I'm going to say. And, you know, it turns out okay. But he said, oh, about 20. (laughs) And I just like slumped down. And he, I think he knew he could kind of read my body language and knew what I was asking. But he said, oh, but a lot of them are are sermon series, you know. And I said, whatever. And uh, But you kind of condense things down and say, okay, you can't look at the big picture. You just got to look at this week. And even one column buys you a few more days. And people always ask me, you know, where do you get your stories? About half of them are I generate, but a half of them, Jason, come from the public. I mean, an email, a call, they'll say, I don't know if this is a good story, but my neighbor down the street's building his own airplane. Well, yeah, that is a good story. Yeah. And this is what I was told when I first got the job, that your presence will generate people's um, it will generate stories and people will maybe send you something and, and they weren't self-serving. I mean, it wasn't, Hey, look what I did. It's always, it was usually somebody, Hey, I've got a friend that's doing this, or I've got somebody I know that's doing this, or this might be of interest. And I'd have to say eight out of 10 times it was, you know, I tell people I tried to write in three different ways. Uh, a columnist by definition is an opinion writer. So there would be opinion pieces uh, because you are by definition, the face of the newspaper. And so I would write opinion, local opinion, usually, or human interest, or first person. And when I would do that, I would try to write it in a way as such that maybe you could see yourself a little bit in what I did mm-hmm. or talking about. Or maybe I'm taking you to a place that you thought about but never in a million years would do. Like skydiving skydiving sitting on the standing on the corner as a homeless person for a morning something like that you know so it wasn't ever hey look at me you know or anything like that it was just well maybe they could see themselves in uh uh, when i had to put down my dog everybody at one time has probably had to do that or going to and you're just struck by how difficult it is and how hard it is and so um that's how I try to do it. So if I could, if a great week would be one opinion piece, a human interest story, and maybe me, first person, something, something or other. Did did one of those categories feel most natural to you, or come easier to you? Um, the ones that probably were the best or my favorite were usually human interest, um, because people enjoy reading about people. We're relational. We 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 relate to what others are doing. Opinion pieces were easier. Because I would usually only write those when I was a little bit irritated. <laughs> Words seem to come a little better that way. And um, first person, you, you really got to pick and choose your moments. If you do that too much, people, still people get turned off like, I'm, I'm not interested in reading your diary. You yeah. know? So you got to choose your moments carefully and your subjects. But the human interest, the writing about people or, or even issues or, or what I call ordinary people doing extraordinary things probably resonated with me more than anything. I want to talk about that because more than, than just about anybody in town, you've 
been exposed to those kinds of stories, to mm-hmm. ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Tell me what you've learned just about the people of Amarillo as a result of that. I mean, having heard of these stories or, or seen the spirit of people who live here, can you make any generalizations about what Amarillo's like or, or what's unique to this area? You know, Jason, it's a really surprisingly diverse area of people. Uh, you know, you think, well, Amarillo, Texas, it's all it's all cowboys and Western uh, uh, influence and culture. And, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of that. But it's really a diverse. It's a potpourri of, of, of people with varied interests uh, doing many different things. Uh, I'm struck by the the arts community here, by uh, by the quality of, of, of music and of um, drama. You, you think, well, it's just a collection of one, but it's really a lot of people with so many different interests and hobbies and and that may be true everywhere, but uh, for Amarillo, I think you get stereotyped a little bit. And I just would, I'm, I'm struck and, and have been for a long time at the, at the diversity of, of people and their interest here, which is surprising to, would be surprising to a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Unless you live here. You Unless know, you I, live here and you, and you poke around and you, yeah. and you look around and you find out that there's just a number of different, different people doing many different things, you know. You've recently retired from the newspaper, which means that weekly pressure of having to come up with stories has, has mm-hmm. been lifted. I, I hope you're feeling pretty good about that. Well, so far, yes. <laughs> uh, it's still early. Um, I, I want to talk to you about the industry itself. Okay. You were a part of it for so many years uh-huh. and have seen change not just in leadership and staffing and everything here in Amarillo, but the, the newspaper industry has changed immensely just in the past few decades. It really has. I, I as I wrote, I, I, I started in the, I say the last few years of the heyday of right. newspapers and, and, uh, I mean, a staff of that many sports writers sure, in a town yeah. like Amarillo is, I'll give you an example. And this is industry wide, but, the, but in Amarillo, uh, back in the late eighties and this was eighties was the heyday. I mean, we had the morning and the afternoon paper. You had both staffs. You had, you were printed here. You just had a big, probably bloated staff. We had over 340 full-time employees. That's I mean, incredible. Now it's like 36. Yeah. There's like 90% have gone. Now, you know, you lose an afternoon paper, you, you know, certain things have happened to contribute to that. But I would say if you, even if you went back two to three years, there were probably, I don't know, probably close to a hundred. And so it's been a, a and, and you could say this just about any newspaper in the country. Uh, that has, has, has over the last 15 or more years because of, and I think everybody knows why, the technology and uh, ways that people consume their news and information has changed. And so the the newspaper industry has had to be a little bit more diverse. And, you know, obviously profits have gone down because advertising runs the runs things. And so having said that, I think newspaper leadership has been a little bit poor in in how they've reacted to that. I think the sit- conditions of newspaper is half homicide and half suicide. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think there's been there's been some poor decisions made within uh, within the realm of the industry uh, that's contributed to this. And uh, you know, at one time, even a few years ago, I had a publisher tell me, "Oh, we'll be around to print your obituary." Who made meaning? 
the print product would. I'd say right now that is not true. And yeah. I, and I, you know, and I hope to live a long time, but, <laughs> but I, but I think, I think it's been accelerated the print pro- product because you're seeing some places Ann Arbor, Michigan, where the university of Michigan is, uh, New Orleans, major city, they're printing twice a week or three times a week. Now they have their website and it's constantly being updated. And that's where most in their e-editions and other, other platforms, but the traditional print newspaper printed two or three times a week. And I think that may be a bigger trend as we go forward because of the cost of paper. It's even higher now because of the tariff situation. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a real uncertain future for the print product and very much. There's been a lot of consolidation to where you know, most Americans, if they're relying, they, they used to rely on, say, the Globe News to, mm-hmm. to get their even mm-hmm. national news. Right. Now it's Fox News oh, yeah. and it's CNN. Right. The really big newspapers like the New York Times or the Washington Post, you know, have these billionaire backers now. Mm-hmm. You know, Jeff Bezos mm-hmm. is helping keep the post afloat. But like mid-level places like Amarillo haven't had that huge investment. There hasn't been some billionaire out in Silicon Valley saying, OK, I'm going to save all these regional newspapers. Right. And without that, do you see a path forward for, for these Hometown you know, I always stories? thought, well, first of all, I think the last ones standing will be the small community newspapers that are pretty much locally owned. You know, Like a weekly Canyon, yeah, Texas. exactly. Canadian. Yeah. The Canadian Record is an excellent uh, weekly newspaper. Locally owned. And, and, and advertisers support them. Who knows what kind of return they're going to get on their investment to advertise. And they probably know it's not much, but they're willing to support that entity because they're the only ones that cover Canadian, Texas. We're kind of in the middle. You know, I say we, Amarillo, mid-sized papers. The ideal thing I've always believed is it would be local ownership. But now to come in and do that, it's, it's you know, I'm no business expert at all, but it would be difficult at first. Perhaps you could turn the corner. But, you know, local ownership would be ideal. That would be the way to go, I think, just because you're invested in that community and you're not a decimal point and you're not one of... Uh, 450 or 500 entities that a national uh, chain owns, you know, so, but that's easier said than done. Yeah. I, I want to ask what's next for you because I, I haven't experienced it personally, but I I know as a writer, um, you know, there's, you're just drawn to write, you're drawn Mm -hmm. to tell stories and Mm -hmm. communicate and your job situation has changed. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me what you think is next. I mean, do you, do you see retirement as being okay? I don't have to tell any stories anymore, so I'm not going to, or do you, you see something else happening? You know, I think it's going to evolve. I think right now I would like to expand my freelance work, which I do enough of when I had the real job to, to stay busy. But now I can try to expand it maybe beyond to some statewide publications. Um, possibly, you know, I had a book in 2014 um, that the Globe News helped print, I, a collection of columns. I may uh, look at that as pursuing that here shortly. Uh, to see how that might uh, transpire. But, um, you know, there's going to be times I know when there's going to be particularly some hot button issues that arise and I don't have that outlet. You don't have the platform anymore. Yeah, and I may just be banging my head on the wall or something like that because, you know, as as I've said, and I I really believe this, uh, everyone's entitled to my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) uh, But but no... um, so, you know, that's going to kind of be, I mean, that's going to be a work in progress a little bit. But part of me doesn't kind of wants to get away from just that churning grind, right. you know. 
to be able to maybe focus on a few things. And people say, you know, are you going to write books? Like, you know, oh, sure, here we go, you know. And as you know, it's a, it's a project. It's a, you know, there's so many things that go into that. And uh, so, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, but I do want to c- continue to keep writing in some form or fashion. Uh, a couple of people have said, uh, call me. Uh, I have some ideas, and and these would be people that which would probably be be some writing. So who knows? You know, probably by the end of eighteen, I'll have a better handle on what I'm being going to be doing on a on a more uh, consistent basis in terms of writing. But you know, I I do want to continue to write, and I'm not good at very many things, and maybe I'm not even good at writing. But uh, that does kind of and keeps me interested without burning me out. You okay. know. I, I want to ask you one more question, uh, and, and this is, I, I guess, more of a 30,000-foot question, but this is a unique period of time in the United States to be a member of the media, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's more suspicion than ever about, you know, truthfulness or accuracy or bias or, or anything like that. And so you're, you're sort of getting out of the industry at this time. What's your perspective on what it's been like just to be in the business, you know, the last couple of years? Well, you know, it's been under attack, obviously, in the industry itself from, uh, I think a lot of people have gotten their uh, cue from uh, President Trump, who more or less declared war on uh, on mainstream media. Uh, I will say this. Sometimes I think the media, when I say the media, I'm talking about the whole entity, not just specific ones. And, and, and the media is a really broad uh, description, yeah. but I'll just say the media and people can determine what that means. I think sometimes they've been too thin skinned. I think uh, it's like, how dare you criticize us? Hey, if we're criticizing others, we deserve some ourselves. And the kind of criticism to look and say, can we do a better job? Can we do it fairer? Are there areas where we're not giving uh, fairness or, or, or balance? Uh, you know, the thing about run something on page one and then the retraction, if it's wrong, is buried inside. Right. You know, that's not fair. That's not right. And so I think sometimes the media bows up and says, you know, how dare you? When they, you ought to be, put your big boy pants on, listen to what is being said, and if there is legitimate criticism, you need to act upon it. Having said that, you're not in this business very long at all. If you're intentionally, especially intentionally, you're not in it at all. But if you're getting facts wrong and things wrong and stuff wrong, you're not in this business for very long. Woe be to the reporters who screw up because they go into an editor's office and it is not a pleasant conversation in there. So to think that there's some kind of conspiracy that some people might have to intentionally put out fake news or, or lies or distortions, maybe it happens in some of these offshoot uh, websites and stuff that are they're just in it for the clicks. But for the mainstream legitimate media, it does not happen. I mean, there are mistakes made, but there are not intentionally distorted you know, stories that are done, uh, particularly when it comes to facts. Now, I think people misunderstand the role of a columnist as a report as right. to a role of a newspaper to a reporter. But um, I don't think this this whole fake news thing. A lot of times, fake news is unpleasant news, mm-hmm. and and sometimes that's the moniker for it. So, 
Yes, the media deserves, is not beyond criticism. Of course it's not. Take a look at what's being said. Learn from it. Go on and then try to do the best job you can. Okay, things are about to get real. So this is the part of the show where I usually have a sponsor message. That isn't the case today. I've been fortunate enough to have a sponsor for all 44 weekly episodes until this one, and I'm super grateful to those local businesses who have chosen to sponsor the show. Just to pull back the curtain a little, there are two reasons I've sought sponsors for these episodes. Number one, I've spent my career in advertising, and I think podcasting is a truly effective advertising medium right now. Print media is struggling. People stream TV and skip the commercials. But podcast listenership is growing, and the idea of a local podcast with a dedicated local listenership is really exciting to me just as an advertising format. Number two, I'm a self-employed freelancer. I get paid by the hour, and sponsorship covers the hours it takes me to plan, write, record, edit, and produce the podcast on a weekly basis. Now, this podcast may be a labor of love, but, well, it's nice to get paid for that labor. So, if, if you appreciate this podcast and you want to support it, or if you have a business or an organization that could benefit from the exposure you'll get as a sponsor, please get in touch with me. I'd love to talk to you about partnering with me to produce episodes of Hey Amarillo. Okay, I'm back with John Mark Ballou, formerly of the Amarillo Globe News, now retired. Um, John Mark, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Uh, I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those in whatever degree of detail you want to. Um, we'll start with one that I have not asked of anybody to date. What is your favorite story from your days as a sports writer? Well, thank you. All, all journalists root, root for the story. You root for the best story. And in 1986, uh, Emerald High uh, boys basketball team won state championship. And totally unexpected. Uh, just came out of nowhere. And they just kept winning. And, and the story got bigger and bigger. And it was, it was sort of a real-life version of Hoosiers. If you remember that movie, Hoosiers, this, this, uh, they were dubbed the nothing team from nowhere at one point. And they won it all. And if you root for the story... That was a great story, and it's something I'll always remember. What's your favorite moment or story from your days writing a column? Well, let me uh, give you a couple. I think the ones that I really got a lot out of, if, if, if I wrote something and I saw that a difference was really made afterward, uh, a couple of them. One was a, a, a dad, a granddad, and his blind adopted son, uh, about 14 years old, in Fritch, uh, their trailer was completely destroyed in those wildfires a few years ago, and the sun was basically blind. They lost it all. And I just kind of wrote their story. I didn't say, hey, you got to help these people. But people took it upon themselves, and it was unbelievable how much they got donated in terms of stuff for him, for the boy, for blindness, and just unreal. The other one was kind of along the same lines. It was a, uh, a, uh, a woman who... Uh, she typed medical transcriptions you know, on a computer, and she worked at home and single mom and didn't have much insurance, didn't have any insurance at all, couldn't really get it where she worked. She lost, she, she had cataracts and could not hardly see, was really going to have to give up her job because she couldn't read anymore. And I kind of wrote about her dilemma, kind of a catch-22, and uh, Winfred Moore, the old uh, famous uh, pastor at First Baptist Church, read that column. He called me at home and said, 
I want to pay for her uh, cataract operations. I have the means to do that, but I'd prefer not to let her or anyone know it or they do it anonymously. I said, okay. And so I was like the go-between. Mm-hmm. I took the money. I, I gave it to the doctors. Uh, I told her about it. She's very grateful. I said he wanted, she wanted to be an, he wanted to be anonymous. He paid for both of them, which was about $12,000. Never wanted anybody to know. She was able to restore her sight. And when Dr. Moore died a couple of years ago, uh, covering that funeral, I did. That's when I told her, told the public that it, her angel was Dr. Winford Moore. And uh, I remember taking thank you notes to from her to him anonymously. And so that was interesting. And then the final, that, that was really gratifying. And the final one I think I mentioned earlier was uh, standing on a street corner as a homeless person. You know, we always come to those intersections. What do we do? How do we act? Do we look at them? You know, what's it like to be on the other end? And uh, it was very humbling, very revealing. Told me a lot about the people of Amarillo hmm. that, uh, you know, they I, I got like $40 in money, which I gave to City Church. People gave me their lunches, said, I'll, I'll eat something later. It was it was eye-opening. It, it told me a lot. And uh, so I'll, I'll remember those for sure. You know, people within the journalism industry and outside it kind of expect journalists to have this dispassionate, a step removed from whatever story. Mm-hmm. In your position, being able to write stories like that and talk about people who have needs, even if there wasn't you know, really a, any agenda behind it, did, did you sometimes feel like, okay, I've got this platform that has some power. I mean, did, did you find yourself kind of looking for stories and thinking, I, I might be able to do something with this? Yeah, or? yeah, you don't want to be like arrogant, like, oh, I'm coming here to save this person. But I thought, okay, I do have a little bit of a platform. If I just tell the story as well as possible, and I never would say, hey, you got to help these people. Right. And, and or maybe occasionally there might be a number as a back, you know, as a breakout where you could call to help. But because so many people do need help. And you, but if I just told the story as well as I could, that might inspire somebody to, to, to give them a handing, a handout or, or hand up or whatever. And so sometimes I kind of wrote that with that in mind, that maybe by telling their story and getting it out there, that somebody might be willing to give them that hand. But yeah. also knowing your audience, that Amarillo people are super willing oh, yeah. to they really help are. out oh, sure. yeah, they their are. community. Yeah, I mean, sometimes my phone would ring off the wall saying, well, you didn't tell who's who to contact, you know? And uh, I said, well, give me your, uh, we'll, we'll help you out here. Uh, let me get some information from you type of thing. So uh, you, you've talked about sort of being a, the public face of the newspaper. Um, I, this is a question I ask pretty often. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? I would say don't believe the stereotypes, you know, uh, uh, most people, when do they hear about Amarillo? Well, when there's a snowstorm. And I think, oh, it must snow there all the time. Well, it can, but sometimes, like last year, it didn't snow at all. Mm-hmm. The thing I tell about Amarillo is uh, it's still an independent city. It's still got its, a lot of independent roots because we are not what I call a blowfish community. We, we, we're not 20 miles away from Dallas or a major metro where we can just kind of feed off of of what they throw us our way. We've had to literally pull ourselves up with our bootstraps. And uh, there's an independence here, but as I alluded to earlier, there's a, there's a diversity here. And you'd be surprised that whatever niche you have, uh, you can probably find it here in Amarillo. What does this area have too much of? There's too much wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
we all know that. And this is probably true of every city. So it may not be uh, more so than, say, Lubbock or, or Abilene or wherever. But sometimes I think we have too many complainers. We have too many people that just want to sit on the sidelines and second guess or naysayers or just just people that like to gripe. Uh, you know, I, I know that's kind of the way the world works a little bit. But sometimes it seems like we have that that subsection of people that just want to just sit around and complain when there's so many things you could do to help our city. I've had that conversation before with people. I think the perception is that there's a lot of those complainers. It may be that there's a small number, but they're especially noisy. Right. They're loud, and, 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 and there's no question, you know, with social media, they're a lot more obvious. So I don't think there's any more than there maybe was 30 years ago. But maybe they're a little louder. They can amplify their voices. And depending now, like on the uh, depending on the issue at hand, they can get fairly loud. Thirty yeah. years ago, they would have been writing letters to yes, the editor, right, but nobody right. does that now. Right, exactly. What does this area not have enough of? Um, concerts, major right. concerts. You know, we used to, Jason. We used to, you know. Now you hear about some concert on the radio and go, "Yeah, I'd like to go to that." And it's in Oklahoma City or Dallas mm-hmm. or, or, or Lubbock, and uh, you know, we still have our local core music groups, which are good, but. Not those major groups or, or, or solo artists that used to come in here. A lot of that has to do with the Civic Center. And, and that's the next thing on the agenda, I think, yeah. for the city. But it seems like we've been kind of passed by that that concert era that, that I grew up in. And I could remember major acts, pretty major acts coming here. And we don't get that anymore. We used to, to be a good stopover, you know, between yeah. the big cities, mm-hmm. you know, Denver, Dallas. And yeah. I, I think it's a matter of having a venue now that that is going to meet their needs, mm-hmm. you know, without feeling like, well, I've got to... And I know if you talk to Sherman Bass at the Civic Center and some others, you know, it's a juggling. It, there's a lot of things that go into that, that that I'm not fully aware of, and I know others aren't as well, but um, it, it, as you alluded to, there's kind of that stopover and, you know, does it seat this many and, and that type of thing. And there's no doubt we don't get as many as we used to. Yeah. And as a music guy, I kind of miss that. What's your favorite Amarillo restaurant? I thought about that. That's like asking me, which, which of my kids do I really like the best? You know, probably it's the last one I went to. You know, I'm kind of like Will Rogers, who said, I never met a man I didn't like. I've never really met a restaurant I didn't really like. But, you know, a couple that stand out is one that me and my wife enjoy going to uh, is El Patron. The Mexican food place it used to be on 45th and Bell, mm-hmm. and they now moved to uh, I-40 O'Bennigan's. And, uh, I think they, we started going to, they, for a while they were giving free soap of peas. And, uh, but I, I don't know the, the, I know it's family owned, like a lot of good ones are around here. But, I, you know, we just kind of drawn to that place a little bit, uh, although I've eaten it in numerous Mexican food places. The other one, which is quintessential Amarillo, I think, is um, Coyote Bluff. Yeah. You know, it looks like you're going into a tool shed to eat. <laughs> And it's not much bigger than that, but, you know, I guess it's the rusticness and, and the, how different it is. And basically, you've got hamburgers and you've got steak and we got steak and we got hamburgers. And, and you know, that's just, you know, you feel like you're eating with other people when you're sitting in the in the table because it's so close. But it's, to me, that's Amarillo, man. That's that that's there's a place like that. Coyote Bluff is known for the burger from hell. Have you tried that? You know, I haven't because those give me hiccups, <laughs> uncontrollable hiccups. And so not, I won't try it in public. I'll just say that. So, um, you've worked downtown for mm-hmm. 30 plus years. What's your favorite downtown building? 
You know, it's easy to say, and it is a great one, the, the Santa Fe building, particularly at night when the red and the, and the lights are shining, and you see Santa Fe, and, and that's what it says. And uh, that's what says Amarillo. I mean, you could see that anywhere, and you go, that's Amarillo. And so that's one, but, I, you know, I think I'll give you another one that's uh, people will probably overlook, and it's because I drill, drove by it for years, and I watch it take shape is the old Firestone Tire Building, yeah. the 10th and Tyler. It was just... You know, years ago, that's where you got your tires, and it was fire, the Firestone building. And then for years, it said empty. And then Gary Jennings, you know, bought it and has now transformed that into uh, uh, some condos. Uh, it's called the Firestone. Still a really unique it building. It is. I mean, and in the way they've taken that building and made it into a, a cool-looking building, I mean, that's what renovation is about, and it's just... Uh, Taken kind of a almost an eyesore into something really nice, and I don't know how old that building is. I probably dates back to the '30s, and but it's it's my one of my favorites because I've I've seen it transform, you know, over the years. Okay, and then uh, the the last question, uh, and you alluded to this with the stereotypes of Amarillo, but what when was the last time you wore cowboy boots? Man, I am not. You know, I this dates me, but. The only boots I remember wearing, unless I was three years old, was uh, some, uh, I think they called them dingo boots or some square-toed boots years ago. And I had a, I had some of those, and that was probably junior high or high school. But I'm not, you know, I wear tennis shoes. I wear, uh, you know, loafers. I wear dress shoes, mostly just uh, comfortable docker-type stuff. Got tennis shoes on now, running shoes. And, uh, you know... I'm probably a, a, a shame to my West Texas roots, but now I have hiking boots. I don't think you're counting yeah, those. I don't, I don't think, think those count, but just regular boots. I don't own a pair. All right. Well, that concludes our eight straight questions. Uh, John Mark, I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what is, what is something locally, whether it's a place or an experience or whatever that you would want local people to know about or to experience? Well, this gets talked about a lot now, but, it's hard to ignore downtown uh, and endorse that. Uh, just last week, a friend of mine who grew up here uh, used to work at the Globe News, and now he's kind of into a chamber of commerce uh, in the Houston area. And he was up here for a, a seminar and conventions, and he grew up here. He comes back periodically, and we were eating downtown at one of the downtown establishments, and he said, it is unbelievable how this downtown has changed. I never would have thought that. And, it, and it's true. If your core is not strong, then then your city is just kind of weak. But if your core is strong in the middle, and downtown has, has changed so much over the last 10 or 15 years, it, it's it's amazing. And if, if, if you don't work down there, if you don't go down there, you kind of lose sight of that. But now it's busy at night. There's many places to eat, entertainment. It's just something in light of where Amarillo was in the 80s and 90s downtown to where it is now. It's quite, it's quite the transformation, and it's something that people should really embrace and, and, and be proud of. And it's only going to get better with uh, you know, the baseball, and there will be more retail that will open up. And it, I, I think, say it still feels like we're even in the beginning stages it does, of that. It does, and, and I think you know, it's never going to be like an Austin 6th Street or something like that. But in the summer months when it's warm, I think you'll see people on sidewalks and people doing this or that. And, you know, that's something or that's just a quality of life issue that I think Amarillo needs to be proud of because a lot of work went into getting to this point. 
John Mark Ballou, thanks for being on the Hamrello podcast. I appreciate well, it. Jason, thank you for uh, thank you for asking me. I, I I'm also a fan of how diverse you are and how you've been able to do a lot of things and do a lot of things well, my friend. Well, I appreciate that. And that concludes the episode. So I want to say thanks to John Mark Ballou for taking time out of his busy schedule being retired uh, to sit down for an interview with me for the show. John Mark doesn't really have a a website at the moment, um, but if you do go to Amarillo.com and search for Ballou, that's B-E-I-L-U-E, you can probably find enough of his columns and other writing to keep you reading for weeks. So thanks, John Mark. Uh, I I do appreciate it. You can find out more about this show, about the Amarillo podcast at heyamarillo.com. Follow the show on Twitter at heyamarillo, on Facebook, do a search for heyamarillo podcast, and on Instagram at heyamarillo podcast. Thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. The last thing I ask is that you share the show with somebody. Leave a review. Tell somebody about uh, Hey Amarillo. Anyway, thank you for listening. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.